Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. I'm coming to y'all on the road today, and I'm leaving Raleigh, North Carolina, where I just attended the debate between Dr. Eric Wielenberg and Dr. William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig is a professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, and Dr. Wielenberg is a professor of philosophy at DePaul University. The debate was held at NC State University on February 23, 2018. The topic of the debate was what better explains objective moral values and duties. Dr. Craig defended his version of modified divine command theory, and Dr. Willenberg defended a form of normative realism. In other words, Dr. Craig believes morality is constituted by God's nature and commands, and Dr. Willenberg believes morality is irreducible and is reason-implying. Dr. Willenberg was kind enough to sit down with me over a couple of beers to discuss some of his thoughts on the debate, as well as a few outside of the debate. Here's that discussion. Enjoy. Dr. Eric Wielenberg, we just finished up with his debate with Dr. Craig. Um, Dr. Wielenberg, how about tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in this debate? Okay, so I think so. There's a guy named uh, Adam Johnson. He is the mad scientist behind uh, the debate. He just emailed me. It's probably been two years ago now, and he was a pastor at the time, and it was his idea to have a debate with. With Craig and I, I had written um, some some stuff that had ga- engaged with uh, Craig's work critically, and I actually initially said no because, as uh, if you if you if your listeners know about Dr. Craig, they'll know that he's got a strong debate background. I do not have that skill set, <laughs> so I turned <laughs> I turned it down, and uh, I offered as an alternative. I said, why don't we do just a written exchange because I've done that sort of thing with some other uh, theist uh, Christian philosophers. And Dr. Craig made a sort of counteroffer where he said, well, why don't we have a debate where we write the speeches in advance? And that seemed actually like a reasonable um, sort of compromise so that we would have a chance to, we would send the speeches back and forth, we would have time to think about the other person's speech, respond in writing our own speech. And I do think it, I think it turned out pretty well. I think it was a, a pretty good quality exchange where we, to a certain extent, engaged with each other's uh, arguments. Um, yeah, so that's the that's the backstory. Yeah. So um, I guess we should move in next to what the topic of the debate was actually about. Um, the question was, what is the best explanation of objective moral values and duties? Um, so I think we should uh, – when, when you say that you accept the claim that there are objective moral values and duties, what does that claim mean to you? What's the content of that? <clears throat> right. So it's – the way I explain it roughly is – there are truths about certain things being morally right or wrong, certain things being good and evil, that are, as you might say, out there in the world. Their truth does not depend on human beliefs or cultures or practices, so that if we all went crazy and became convinced that some awful thing was really okay, it would still be awful. If, if we became convinced that some morally wrong thing was morally acceptable, it would still be wrong. Um, that, that, would, that would be how I would characterize it. Okay. It's, would it be fair to say that your view is um, what has been called in the literature an ethical non-naturalist view? Right. So the other part of my view is a, th- a view about what 
the, um, the nature of the moral properties of things. And so it's a, what's sometimes called a non-reductive view. So, I mean, maybe, that, maybe a good way to explain the view is to contrast it with some of the alternative views. So there are, um, for example, theistic views that say for something to be good just is for it to resemble God, kind of like the way for something to be water is just is for it to be H2O. And then there are more uh, naturalist views where the idea is that moral features of things are just natural features of things that can be studied empirically. So my idea is that um, they are moral features are their own kind of thing. They're not reducible to or uh, identical with some other feature. They're sort of a fundamental feature of uh, reality. So your view is opposed to all forms of what's called ethical naturalism. Right, that's right. And so this... This ethical non-naturalism, as it's sometimes called, has made something of a comeback recently in philosophy. So much more famous philosophers than I have defended it. Derek Parfit uh, would be an example. Russ Schaefer-Landau, David Enoch um, are some of the more prominent defenders of this view. But I'm in, I'm in their camp as well. And in my defense of it, one thing I do that they, these other philosophers really don't do is try to engage more seriously with the sort of theistic approaches to morality, including Dr. Craig. So that's uh, it was through some of that writing that I think um, really led to the, the debate happening between Craig and I. So Dr. Craig's view is that these objective moral values can be grounded in God's nature uh, or constituted by God's nature and that our objective moral duties are constituted by God's commands. Mm-hmm. And so that's, this is often called uh, modified divine command theory. So that's the theory that he put forward in the debate. What were some of the problems that you, or implausibilities that you saw with that view? Right. So in the end, I tried to draw three implausibilities. One um, being very, I think, a sort of simple and straightforward argument, which is simply that on, on Craig's view, there's really only one thing that can, by itself, generate true moral obligations, and that's being commanded by God. So I just tried to make the case, consider hypothetical scenarios, um, and point out, so an example I used in the debate was, if you could, suppose you could prevent a million holocausts by, simply by raising a finger, it seems like just that by itself would be sufficient to make it wrong for you to take a nap instead, whereas on Craig's view, you would need a command or an order from God to make it wrong. Um, So that was one pretty straightforward objection. The other two were a bit more Involved, but another problem I think is uh, on Craig's view. It's actually it's actually hard to see why God would command people to do things that He knows they won't do anyway. Because on Craig's view, even without the command, certain actions will be evil already because of their relation to God's nature. And so, if God, on His view, God would know in advance whether the command would make a difference. So, for example, God would know that, like, if I were to, um, he would know if I were to encounter a suffering child who needed help, God would know whether his command would make a difference in whether I would help or not. And so a challenge for Craig's view, I think, is um, if God, God knows that I wouldn't help even if he commanded me to, why command me to do it? All the command does is um, introduce more evil into the world by making my failure to help a sin um, and so God has a reason not to issue that command. So the implications of that would be that God would only command people to do things when he knows that they would do it, when it would make a difference, which suggests that uh, there actually would be no 
wrong actions. And of course, that's clearly not the situation in our uh, world. Uh, and then a third objection that came out, this is probably the most involved of the three, but basically Dr. Craig committed himself to the view that God would not permit evildoers to get away with their evil action. And that's why he would um, forbid certain actions, even if he knew people would uh, not listen to those commands. Uh, but at the same time, so that suggests that um, God is going to not allow evildoers to um, perform evil actions without those actions also being wrong. But at the same time, Craig's view seems to require that in order for people to have moral obligations, they have to be aware of the authority behind moral requirements. And so the key here is psychopaths. There's a lot of research in psychology that suggests that psychopaths are incapable of grasping the authority of morality. And so basically Craig's view seems to imply that there should be no psychopaths. Because on the one hand, on his view, they would have no moral obligations, and yet they clearly perform evil actions. And that's just the sort of thing that Craig says God would not permit. So, so I think in the debate, Craig found himself in a bit of a bind. Um, some of the things he said suggested that psychopaths would not have moral obligations, but other things he said committed him to the view that psychopaths would have moral obligations. And since there are psychopaths, he's, he's got a problem on his hands. Um, there seems to be a contradiction in his view. Um, so Craig obviously responded to some of these objections uh, in direct or indirect ways, but one of the uh, responses that I found interesting of his is that um, your second objection about um, God not issuing commands to people that he knew would freely choose to not perform that action, that that assumes something what's called in the philosophy of religion middle knowledge, and that God would have... <clears throat> knowledge of the future acts of free creatures. Now, for those who are not familiar, um, in the philosophy of religion, there's a problem of um, God's divine foreknowledge and human freedom. If God knows in the future what we're going to choose, in what sense can we be free? And middle knowledge is one of the mechanisms in which they try to resolve this tension. Now, your objection seems to uh, assume or concede this middle knowledge view, and Craig said that this was surprising. Did you find this to be an objection um, to you, or, or where, what was he driving at that? Is, is, does it somehow count against your view to concede middle knowledge to him? Yeah, it's a good question. So, let's see. Uh, in the debate, Craig focused on criticizing my specific view. So I've got a non-theistic approach to morality. A lot of his criticisms focused on the details of my view. So it seemed to form a kind of symmetry and be perfectly reasonable to focus on his particular view in its entirety. So in the, in the comment that you're asking about, he was making a point which is correct, which is that there are divine command theorists, Robert Adams being an example, who reject the doctrine of middle knowledge. But in the debate, Craig said that he himself accepted this doctrine of middle knowledge. And so my aim in the debate was to make the case against Craig's cluster of views uh, specifically. So, I mean, one way of putting it is, um, yeah, if I were debating Robert Adams, this would not be a good objection. But since I was debating Craig, uh, I think it is a good objection. He does hold the doctrine of middle knowledge. 
Now, there's, I think, a further point to be made, which is the doctrine of middle knowledge is not, um, well, let me put it this way. If it turns out that divine command theory and the doctrine of middle knowledge don't fit together very well, that's, an, that's a philosophically interesting result. Um, because in Craig's case, he appeals to divine, uh, to middle knowledge in order to avoid the problem of freedom and foreknowledge. He uses it to explain how humans can still act freely even if God foreknows all their actions. Um, but secondly, planning as free will defense to the problem of evil, which is sort of widely considered by many philosophers to have defeated the logical problem of evil, depends on Molinism. So, or and the doctrine of middle knowledge. So this doctrine of middle knowledge is not something that is sort of easily uh, given up. But in the context of, of the debate, I think it was a, an effective objection since my goal in the debate was to make the case that Craig's specific approach to, uh, his specific theistic approach to morality is unsuccessful. And since he does accept middle knowledge, I think it was, a, it was an effective objection. Okay. Um, so Craig also focused on uh, your view in calling it um, what he's called in the past atheistic moral Platonism, and that you're committed to these sort of ontologically weighty properties out in the world, and that this is implausible because there would there doesn't seem to be any way for these to causally interact with each other. Is that something? Would you characterize your view as Platonistic or? Do you find these causal objections to have a lot of force in it, or how do you how do you approach okay. that sort of objection? This is a this is a big question. There's a bit of complexity, so bear with me. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, one I think important point is that in the debate, in the early parts of the debate at least, Dr. Craig interpreted my view as involving causation between like the physical world and basically platonic forms, abstract entities. Uh, and that is not part of my view. So my view does not involve causation of that sort. And so it's, that's a case where I think the, the, you know, Craig was probably rightly um, suggesting that that would be a weird sort of causation. I agree. I think the key thing there is that's, that's not part of my view. Now, the other sort of part of this is the following. So in my book, Robust Ethics, I did assume the reality of what could be described as platon platonic entities. Um, so that, for example, there would be such a thing as the property of moral wrongness, an, an abstract object. And that particular things that are morally wrong would instantiate or exemplify that abstract property. The interesting twist with Craig in particular is that he has recently written a book called, or published a book called God Overall, where he defends a kind of nominalism. And actually on Craig's view, he thinks that particular things can have properties with, for example, a property of moral wrongness without there being such a thing as the abstract entity moral wrongness. So there's actually this sort of weird dynamic where if Craig's nominalism is correct, then actually the, even the platonic component of my view would be, could, could be uh, jettisoned. So it's a weird situation where um, by defending nominalism, but at the same time trying to attack the platonic aspect of my view, Craig sort of put himself in a kind of a dilemma because if his own def 
defense of nominalism is correct, then I can just jettison the Platonic component of my view. Because in the end, the point of my view is to make the case that there are particular things that have particular objective moral properties. And if Craig is right that things can have particular properties without there being abstract, corresponding abstract properties, so if particular things can be morally wrong without there being the abstract property moral wrongness, then the platonic part of my view would actually be um, dispensable. So that's sort of similar to the view that I've defended in past views where um, I say that there are some irreducibly normative truths and some of which are objective moral truths and that these truths don't have any ontologically weighty implications. This view is sometimes called quietism and is defended by people like Derek Parfit and Thomas Nagel and Tim Scanlon. Um, would your view be similar to their view in, in that sense? Or I know taking on labels in philosophy is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think... I would want to go back and sort of look more carefully at how like Parfit, for example, describes his quietism. I suspect that this view where I abandon the, or jettison the platonic component wouldn't quite go as far as Parfit's quietism, where Parfit just wants to say nothing at all about the metaphysics. I would still want to say something about the metaphysics. For example, I, I have this idea that we need to say something about the relation between um, natural features of things and moral properties of things. And I do think it's helpful at least to, to have some account of what that relation might be, whereas I think Parfit doesn't even want to get into that. He says the questions aren't even qu clear yeah. enough to answer. Yeah, okay. He doesn't even address the answers, right, or questions, right. I should say. Okay, good, that's helpful. So in that case, I feel like I would move closer to, to quietism, but I wouldn't be all the sure, way there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good point. Because um, one of the objections to uh, ontologically weighty implication views like Platonism is that, you know, how do, how do particular concrete things causally interact with abstract things? I think I think that that objection has some force to it, um, but you you also uh, told Craig you were like, look, your view faces something similar. Now I realize that you're not defending the view of causation that that, that Craig put forward, but you were saying that the on Craig's view, the mind is a non-physical thing, and that the body is a physical thing, and so the question arises: How does something spatial causally interact with something non-spatial? And that seems to be an equal work. So even if even if we were to set, uh, concede to Craig that there's a mystery between the causal connection, there's the same problem on his view too. That's right. So yeah, you you summarized pretty well one of the points I was making in the debate. So that um, on the one hand, it's not part of my view that there's causation between like particular things and then abstract objects, but I do suggest that there's causation between, say, the, the particular natural features of things and then particular moral features of things. And I don't have an account of how that causation works. I think that's the key. And that's where you see a parallel between um, my view and Craig's view, where in Craig's view, he holds a kind of dualism where there's a physical body and a non-physical soul. And of course, one of the, um, you know, Pop, most popular and oldest objections to that sort of theory is, is precisely that there's no account of how this causation could work. So in the debate, Craig tried to, uh, he, he, he challenged 
um, the sort of causal aspects of my view. Now again, there's, there are two things going on. One is that I think he was mischaracterizing the causal relation, but I still do have a causal relation without an account of how it works. But then my point is simply Craig's theory has a, has exact, is in exactly the same situation. And so the case I try to make in the debate is if we're, if we're weighing the relative plausibility of these two views, it's a tie. So there's no, there's no advantage for Craig's view. So you, uh, I just I want to see if we can, can make this a little bit clearer for the, the, the listeners. You're saying that there's, there's particular features in the world that causally interact with morally particular uh, features. Yes, right. So the, the, the idea that I have in my mind, and please tell me where I go, go wrong if I, if I have gone wrong. Um, so we would, we would say that yanking a cat's tail would be an immoral act because we've caused the cat undeserved suffering in some way. So we would say, but, but that's a contingent truth. So if, if we were to be able to pull a cat's tail and it gave it a jolt of pleasure, we wouldn't say that that was a morally wrong yeah, act. That's Is, right. d- does, this, does that example help clarify any of the ways in which the causal or what you've called a making relationship? Yeah. Well, I think the key is actually the... Um, We've got to keep our attention focused on like a particular cat or a particular <laughs> a particular action of of cattail yanking, and then the wrongness of that particular act. That's the key. So we um, the causation. On my view, the causation that I'm proposing occurs between like the the features of this particular act of cat yanking will generate or cause or produce this act. That particular act's wrongness. Um, so that again, there's no, it's not as if, even if there is an abstract entity like the moral property of wrongness, it's no part of my theory that that entity, the abstract property, is part of the causal interaction. The causal interaction is always between particulars. I think that's the key. Ah, I see. Um, Craig also objected that your view of moral obligation is undermined by your view of the causal closure of the universe. So for those unfamiliar, um, the first law of thermodynamics says that in closed systems, um, energy is always constant. Energy can never be created or destroyed. And one of the common inferences from the principle of the conservation of energy in the first law of thermodynamics is that the universe is causally closed. And so Craig thinks that that belief undermines free will. And so without free will or the ability to do otherwise, um, that undermines um, moral obligation. Now, I know Craig has a libertarian free will, and so you didn't really bite on his um, objection there. And really, because free will in and of itself is a rabbit hole. Yes. Um, (laughs) So his view is definitely incompatibilist. Um, but you didn't you didn't fall on either side of the camp on mm-hmm. that. Would you? It, it, do you have set uh, beliefs on free will? Whether we have it, do you think that that objection has any force? Are you a compatibilist, a determinist? Um, again, philosophical labels. Yeah. Okay. Good. This is a great question. So, as far as my own views, I would describe it this way. So I, yeah, I, I don't have a settled view. And basically, I think that we need to know more about how the details of how the brain works to figure out what the most plausible account will be. But it seems to me that there are three uh, naturalistic accounts 
of free action or free will that are, as far as I can tell at this point, sort of still in the running. One would be a compatibilist approach, where if it turns out that the universe or just the brain operates deterministically, um, compatibilism, I think, is still a live option. But if it turns out that the brain operates indeterministically or there's sort of causal uh, gaps, um, then there are models where, uh, I, th I think there are two other, broadly speaking, two other kinds of approaches that are, um, you know, seem, seem plausible as far as I can tell. So there are some theories that involve indeterministic approaches, a kind of libertarian freedom, but within a naturalistic physical framework. So Robert Kane would be an example of a philosopher who defends, develops a view like this. Where, he's like the leading Yeah, guy, he's one yeah. of the main guys, right? So I think that's, you know, a, a, certainly a live option. And then interestingly, there are even, so there, there's another theory, uh, incompatibilist theory, or it's often characterized as an incompatibilist theory, agent causation, where the core idea is simply that um, persons or agents can directly cause things to happen. So you have causation by a, an agent or a person instead of another event. Mm -hmm. Now, often this, so actually I think Craig holds a version of this view, but he thinks that the non-physical soul would be the agent. But there's a philosopher named Tim O'Connor who has actually suggested that um, there could be a, a type of agent causation that occurs within a, a naturalistic framework. Um, and so I think that's another uh, possibility. So, so the short version is that there are at least three approaches that, as far as I can tell, are sort of live options, but I think we need to need to know more about the, how the brain works to figure out which of these is going to be the most... Uh, so that's an open question, but you don't think... Yeah. So the, the Craig's objection doesn't just, just doesn't go through because he hasn't engaged with those <clears throat> yeah, I think live options. As far as, as far as the debate, as you say, I mean, free will is a huge topic in and of itself. In the debate, I think Craig tried to... When he, pressed, when he made the objection, I think he basically just assumed quite controversial claims. And, I mean, his own view is that you need a non-physical soul for there to be free will, but I think as far as the debate goes, he was just helping himself to premises that would be very controversial. And basically, you need a, at least a whole debate to really take this sort of book, seriously. Almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With uh, assumptions of that, of that magnitude. Yeah, that's um, right. He also mentioned, so one of the objections was Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism. So he's saying that um, a belief in naturalism um, undermines our ability to say that we have reliable knowledge just in general. So that would obviously attack our moral beliefs. And you denied um, the first premise of, of that argument. You were saying, you're saying that no, there's no that, that evolution doesn't give us any reason um, to, die, to, to deny um, the reliability of our cognitive faculties. Um, one of the ways I've always responded to this is that having true beliefs might have survival value. Um, yeah. it, w would you make similar <coughs> claims? or, or uh, So you, you said uh, Plantinga from his armchair is just speculating that, that we just couldn't have reliable beliefs if evolution was true. Yeah. So, yeah, this is another, I think a kind of theme of Craig's, many of his objections at least were, he came at me with maybe nine or ten objections, <laughs> and I think maybe five to six could have been a debate into it in and of itself. Uh, and so I think it's a case where my my replies were were somewhat compressed. So let me, let me try to explain a bit more what I, what I was going for with um, 
my objection to planning his argument. So I think, you know, planning his argument, again, is there's a whole book on it, and, and it's a huge, complicated topic. And I think there are probably uh, many promising objections. So the particular one that I was uh, going for in the debate um, is goes something like this. So Plantinga himself, when he is developing his argument, he appeals to various analogies. Um, one example is, in, in some cases, he appeals to these drug analogies where he'll say, suppose you've taken the XX drug, as he calls it, and when you take this drug, there's a 90% chance that your faculties will become unreliable, and then he goes from there. And the point of these analogies is he tries to make the case that the naturalist who thinks his cognitive faculties have been formed by unguided evolution is in a similar situation to people in these analogies. People in these analogies have reason to doubt the reliability of their cognitive faculties, and so they're in this skeptical predicament that they can't escape from, and so the naturalist is in a similar predicament. So the key is this. When we're thinking of planning his argument, it's very important to keep track of like what step in the argument we're thinking about. So planning a offers this, what I was calling an armchair argument. And it's a complicated argument, but he tries to make the case that the probability of our faculties being reliable, given that we were formed by unguided evolution, would be low. Here's the key. When you're trying to figure out the, the probability a conditional probability claim. So, like, given that we were created by unguided evolution, what's the probability that our faculties would be reliable? There are lots of different pieces of evidence that we should consider. So here's, the, here's why the drug case is helpful. In, when you're testing a drug, like a drug designed to treat some disease, human trials are sort of the gold standard. So you can imagine a case where, without the human trials, people sort of analyze the drug and they try to predict what effect it will have and they say well the probability of having this effect is low but then in the human trials which are sort of the gold standard it turns out that it actually tends to have that effect that would trump and outweigh the other evidence and you would just conclude this drug actually is likely to have this effect and so the idea I was going for in the debate is if if you're a naturalist and we're thinking about the first step of planning his argument where he's trying to establish this probability claim. Well, a key piece of evidence is what has unguided evolution actually produced, just like in the drug trial, you would look at its actual uh, consequences. So I actually think it's perfectly reasonable for the naturalist to be confronted by planning his armchair argument. I call it an armchair argument, not to sort of uh, be dismissive of it, but to make the Point that it would be outweighed or trumped by more direct empirical evidence. So if you're confronted with this armchair argument, but you have, you have good reason to believe naturalism, and so you look around and you're like, well, here's some other evidence, uh, namely the, the decent reliability of the cognitive faculties of all these creatures that unguided evolution has produced, and it seems like based on that, that kind of trumps everything else. And you should say, it turns out that despite planning his argument, it looks like actually unguided evolution probably does produce uh, reliable believers. Or, or at least somewhat reliable. Obviously, we, we all suffer from biases. Yes. Biases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, reliable enough so that we wouldn't yeah, yeah, yeah. be stuck in, in gotcha. sort of total skepticism. So that was the, the point I was going for in the, in the debate. It did get somewhat compressed, but that's kind of a 
much lengthier explanation. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I actually wanted to then move to a question that wasn't discussed in the debate, which um, might be surprising to some listeners. Um, what's a staple of these types of discussions is the Euthyphro Dilemma. It's kind of a tradition to yeah. talk about the Euthyphro Dilemma, and it didn't come up once yes. in this debate. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you have uh, – so, so I still take it to be something of a decisive objection to divine – because even to the modified versions of divine command theory, um, because at the end of the day, God's nature could still be considered something arbitrary. Yeah. You could still take a more objective view and ask, is it better for God's nature to be this way or that way? And if there's no reason to prefer one way, he could be a cosmic Hitler. Right. Um, do, do you see the Euthyphro dilemma in a, in, in a similar light, or do you think that it's kind of a dead-end objection and that we should move right. on to more powerful objections? Yeah, yeah, good question. Okay. A couple things. Um, so Craig has built his whole theistic approach to morality around defeating the Euthyphro objection. <laughs> That's one fact. So, so one factor here was, as far as a debate went, I, I, my sense is that in debates, if Craig has like one or two replies that sound good, that's enough to sort of get him through. Mm-hmm. He can kind of run out the clock. If he can defeat those, the initial way. Or even sound like he, he's yeah. been defeated. So the reason... So I, I did consciously... And in fact, I succeeded. One of my goals for the debate was that the word Euthyphro would not cross my lips. <laughs> and I succeeded. I did, not, I, did, it, I did not utter that word. Well played, sir. Well thank played. you. Thank you. <laughs> and so partly it, it was strategic for the debate, simply because I felt that, I mean, that's the one that Craig wants. <laughs> he's, he's like, please give me the it's Euthyphro. It's kind of the softball. Rebecca, yeah. uh, Rebecca Goldstein did yes. that recently. Yes. I mean, he just, he nailed it. Yes, he did. Um, so... I do think it's. I, I, I still think there are versions of the euthro that euthro that are interesting and, and challenging. You were describing one. Um, so as far so there are kind of two different things. Like, is it effective in a debate against William Lane Craig? Maybe not so much. Is it nevertheless a good objection? Maybe. So what we should take seriously. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I do think. I mean, to the extent that I was able to to make some trouble for Craig, I think a key was I I, I gave him. I think I gave him some objections, at least one or two he hadn't seen before, to sort of knock him off of his, you know, um, prepared uh, responses. And I think that was able to at least make things more interesting. Um, and yeah, I do think that one, you know, one feature of Craig debates that you often see is that the atheist is unfamiliar, frankly, with a lot of the work in philosophy of religion and thinks that the youth fro is just going to be a devastating objection. And Craig is like more than happy to, to knock it out of the park. Yeah. <laughs> so for that, so yeah, philosophically, it's it's worth exploring. But I do think it it just makes things more interesting too. I think there are other you know problems with divine command theory, and so it's just more interesting. And and uh, if you if you want to de- have a debate, I think maybe more a more effective strategy to try to find um, you know newer objections. So I want to uh, kind of move, since we're, we've moved away from the debate a little, um, and I've got you here, I can ask you questions. Um, the problem of evil. Uh-huh. Um, so there's, the, the, the problem of evil is usually divided into two um, 
different forms. There's the logical versions and there's the evidential versions. And the evidential versions have certainly caught more steam in the past years. And one of the, mo the um, claims is that it's moved away from the logical version, that Plantiga has defeated the logical problem of evil, evil with his free will defense, which, again, coming back to free will, assumes a libertarian sense of free, of free will. Yeah. Um, and so since we've already said that there's at least three other options on yeah, the table, yeah. um, it seems like there is a sense in which God could have created creatures who always chose rightly. Um, do you think yeah. that, 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 that though we could still, there's something salvageable in a logical problem of evil or a logical problem of horrendous evil um, still there, or should, we, or should it move towards evidential <coughs> problems? Yeah, so I do think, in general, if the majority of the philosophical community is like, well, we can all agree that such and such, it's probably a good time to look at such and such, <laughs> see, take it and see whether it's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, plant, so of course, the planning is free will defense assumes uh, an uh, incompatibilist or libertarian approach to free will. So earlier, when we talked about free will, I mentioned three sort of broad approaches to free will. Two of those were libertarian. Um, so I think, I mean, in order to kind of rejuvenate the logical problem through free will, you would have to sort of make the case for a kind of compatibilism. And as I was saying before, I mean, that, that whole... That's a tough case. That, yeah, so that route is kind of, uh, kind of a, a tough one uh, to take. So myself, I'm, I generally am more interested in the, in the evidential version. Mm -hmm. I do think um, it's worth looking at that logical problem, but I'm not sure that trying to make it stick by arguing for compatibilism at least at this stage of our knowledge, is going to be the, the best way to go. So I'll, I'll hit you on another question then for the problem. Um, since we're moving to, since we're on the evidential problem, because yeah. I agree, I, I defended evidential. Um, William Rowe or Paul Draper, which which sort of, uh, and for the for the listeners, there's the, the noceum inference versus sort of a Bayesian inference to the best explanation. Uh, yeah, which one do you find most interesting, I guess, I should, is the better question. So they're both interesting. I, I've thought more about Rose, Rose version, maybe because it involves less math. <laughs> but, um, so one argument, so, okay, so there is a dialectic that goes, try to keep it simple like this, where Rose says, there are all these evils in the world. As far, as far as we can see, they have no explanation. And so it's reasonable for us to conclude that they probably don't have an explanation, therefore that God does not exist. One strategy response to that that's gaining some prominence is so-called skeptical theism, which very roughly says, um, even if there were explanations for these evils, human beings were very limited, we wouldn't be in a position to see them. And so this is supposed to weaken uh, the inference that Rowe's argument depends on. So one, one argument um, I've developed uh, is a kind of response to skeptical theism where I've tried to make the case that um, skeptical theism suggests that God maybe have all these reasons to do different things that are hidden from us. And that seems to open up the possibility or the plausibility of God doing things um, that might be troubling for theists, like lying to us or deceiving us. So, I mean, one very rough way of putting it would be, look, if God has some hidden reason for, say, preventing, uh, permitting the Holocaust, gee, maybe he has some hidden reason for deceiving us in various ways. Beyond think, our kin reasoning. Yeah, yeah, beyond our kin. And I think that leads to implications that theists are not going to be 
too happy about. So God can be deceiving us in various ways. Um, for example, about the afterlife and um, and that sort of thing. Um, it, it could make trouble for divine revelation, for example. So one, I mean, a simple way of putting the idea is that the the, the skeptical component of skeptical theism tends to kind of get out of hand. <laughs> the skeptical theists want to use it in a very focused way. But I've, I and others have tried to make the case that um, once you introduce this idea of, of God having hidden reasons, um, it, it raises all sorts of other more troubling skeptical possibilities. One, one of those skeptical possibilities is that skeptical theism implies moral nihilism. So to come back to the morality, uh, morality of it, uh, Richard yeah, right, Swinburne, okay. I know, has... Um, said that if, um, you know, look, if we can't, if we don't know what certain reasons God may have for certain actions, we don't know what the reasons are to actual, you know, maybe some suffering child's um, suffering is part of some greater good and that we're interfering with that greater good. should let it happen, yeah. Yeah. Do do you find any weight in that? Uh, Because I know uh, it's controversial. Yeah. um, Yeah. Not not all people think that skeptical theism implies. Right, right. Yeah, that one, that's a great question. I'm pr- pretty much going to pass on that question. I'm, not, I'm just not sure what. Yeah. There's a whole literature. I've read some of it. I don't have a that's fair enough. sort of worked out view. Um, it's another case where I tried to kind of take another direction. So, I mean, that, that, I think that objection is certainly worth thinking about. But myself, I'm not ready to, to sort of defend a, a position on it. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Um, so... Coming back to the question of God's existence, um, one of the questions that I always like to ask atheists is, what evidence would change your mind? Is there a consideration which would count in favor? And then you would say, hey, look, I can... Because for me, it's religious experience. I would say that a cogent religious experience would change my mind. Do you have similar thoughts? Um, is, do you, or do you think it's just past the point where you just don't think it could plausibly... No, I certainly... I think there are things that could happen that would... Uh change my mind um, it's probably you can probably think of sort of extreme examples if um, we discovered a sub- subatomic particle and it, all of them had made by God inscribed on them or something like that <laughs> right, you know, so yeah. there, there's cases like that um, it would just be almost irrational to yeah, deny yeah, that yeah, that, of, course, yeah. of course, right So, but to I guess maybe a more interesting... I guess one way of thinking of the question is... I'm going to change your question a bit. Like, what what theistic argument do I think is the most interesting, maybe? Um, That's probably a better question. No, no, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I think they're both good questions. uh, uh, So, I I think the... I actually think the fine-tuning argument is one of the more interesting arguments on on the theistic side. There's a lot of technical issues involved in that one, and then... I haven't actually delved deeply into it, but I just sort of when I'm teaching like philosophy of religion, that one always kind of stands out as one of the more interesting ones to consider on the on the theistic side. Um, yeah. So I'll I'll end with one final question, and it's kind of a, a, a something of a traditional question okay. that we like to ask everyone we interview: Why philosophy of religion? Uh, yeah, that's a good question too. Um, initially, I was actually drawn to it because philosophy of religion has some of the best uh, puzzles, I thought. So what, one of the first things I worked on in the philosophy of religion was just omnipotence. What is omnipotence? There's all these great puzzles about omnipotence, right? Can God make the stone that, uh, uh, so heavy he can't lift it? Um, is 
if God is all-powerful, shouldn't he be able to do evil? Doesn't that conflict with his moral perfection? So initially, I was just, you know, in grad school, it was just like, yeah, these are like the coolest puzzles. That's what drew me in. Later, what drew me in further, and then this kind of leads to the, you know, there, there's a long arc that leads to the debate with Craig tonight, <laughs> which is uh, I, I found myself skeptical of God's existence, but at the same time attracted to the idea that they're objective moral truths. And I came across Craig as a very direct and sort of interesting challenger to that combination of views. And so um, first it was omnipotence, the puzzles of omnipotence, and then uh, later on basically trying to, trying to see if my own combination of views made sense in the light of, light of challenges from the theistic side. For those who are just getting into the philosophy of religion and finding interest in the questions, where would you point them in the direction? Where, where should they start? I always say Hume in the dialogues concerning natural religion. That's a good one. Um, yeah, where to start? There's probably a lot of good entry points. Planning it uh, actually might be a good entry point in the sense that um, I think a lot of Planning's work just kind of set the stage for contemporary philosophy of religion. He really created a kind of framework that a lot of analytic contemporary philosophy of religion basically work in. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or becoming a patron at patreon.com. All music is the work by Work of Wolves. We want to send a special thanks to Richard Kane, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Brandon McCleary, John Donaher, Paul Pinos, Kevin Bachowski, Andrew Snyder, Jason Makuluta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Song.